What's up, everybody? I'm Omar Serrato, experienced and practicing attorney, fierce litigator, and unofficial commentator on the most popular legal issues of the day. I'm the host of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, joined by Eliana Clone Rosa and the TLP crew, where we break down the human aspects of law that everybody wants to talk about. I've been a practicing attorney for many years, but nothing in this show is or should be taken as legal advice. We're not going to pull any punches. We might even get a little bit dirty, but we want you to join us anyway. Welcome, everybody, to the Tilted Lawyer Podcast for episode, I don't even remember what number <laughs> it is anymore. Been you doing this count. long enough. It's been such a crazy week. Last week, I did the show all by myself for the first time. I felt weird about it. Um, but I got my staff back in here, and uh, they're joining us on the podcast. And what are we going to talk about today? What are we going to talk about today? Um, there's a there's a big trial going on. I've been doing these little small daily videos, recaps, and uh, I don't know how much you guys have been um, into Alex Murdoch, if you, if you even know who that is. But so, I do not. Let me just fill you in, so since it's a little more casual now. Uh, it feels like a Friday. Doesn't it feel like a Friday? It does. Yes. I know. Oh, somebody told me that I give them vertigo when I sway back and forth in my chair. <laughs> So I'm making a conscious effort not to do that. Okay. I could see that. Well, we'll see how it goes. Um, at any rate, Alex Murdoch, the last time you guys were here, actually, you guys were not here. You guys haven't been here for like a month. Yeah. A while. It was mm-hmm. just Ileana, but Ileana is busy being a lawyer, so I didn't bother her. I um, barely had time to prepare for this show, but I've been following the Murdoch trial. So let me fill you girls in. The story of Alex Murdoch. You guys remember when we did that show about Thomas Girardi and um, how he pilfered money from all of his clients and how yes. he's um, claiming dementia and all of that? Yes, because he's old. Oh, yeah, he's like 83, yeah. 84, and his wife was like 40. Uh, so, um, yeah, and then she looked, um, we were talking all kinds of shit about how she looks like a fake Barbie doll or something <laughs> like that. And uh, getting into how you would possibly spend $40,000 a month in personal care. I just, I don't think, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to revisit <laughs> that again. Somehow. So Alex Murdoch, South Carolina attorney in South Carolina. I don't know if you guys have ever been there or not. And Maybe some of the folks from South Carolina could chime in, but. It is a different universe. We were just talking earlier about how, you know, I used to work in the music industry on a very entry-level basis way back in the day, like late 90s, uh, early 2000s. And then I kind of shipped off to Ohio. Um, It was a a culture shock like you would not believe. And in South Carolina, uh, where um, I I had an opportunity to visit, when, when, well... Put it this way. You guys are here in California and everything is very diverse and everything yes. is very woke and everybody's very accepting and hippie-ish and, you know, uh, an amalgamation of cultures and thoughts and ideas. Well, when you go to South Carolina, it's not that way. <laughs> it is not that way. And where I lived before in Ohio, it was very much not that way. Not to the extreme that it would be in South Carolina. Now, I lived in Columbus. Columbus it's not that small of a, a city, you know, retrospective of, um, you know, some of the smaller cities you think of when in rural. But they have rural parts of Ohio where it's like a, 
bet you guys don't even know the movie Deliverance. You guys ever seen that movie? I've heard of it and never seen it. Everybody's heard of that movie yeah. because of that one scene, right? But you, you know, Melissa's looking at me like I'm a from Mars. <laughs> okay. What year is that movie from? 1971, I That's believe. Why. It was oh. pre-Exorcist, pre-Rocky. It made Burt Reynolds a megastar back in the day. Ooh, what was that noise? Um, What's that scene you guys are talking about? Maybe if you guys speak about it. The squeal like a pig scene. Yes. <laughs> it's just, you know what? Google it later. Google it. This is a family show. I'm not going to get into it on, a, on, on this podcast. But so, yeah, it's South Carolina has a very small, tight-knit community where everybody knows everybody. And a big-time lawyer, such as Alex Murdoch, um, who was owner of um, one of the biggest law firms in the state, had a considerable amount of sway when it came to everything in South Carolina. So the fact that he is here sitting in a trial where he's being accused of um, murdering his wife and his son is a big deal in South Carolina. Matter of fact, when they were doing the jury selection in this case about a week and a half ago at this point, um, they had 600 prospective jurors, and the big concern was whether or not they were going to be able to seat a jury of 12 because everybody kind of knew the investigator, everybody knew the police officer that wrote the supplemental police report and, or whatever. Everybody knew everybody. But that turned out not to be an issue. They seated him rather quickly. So let me tell you about Alex Murdoch. Aside from all of this, being one of the most powerful men in South Carolina, he, his son... A couple of years ago, back in 2018, 2019 or so, Paul, um, who was one of the victims in this murder trial, he was involved in a boating accident that took the life of a young lady, and there was a whole civil lawsuit, there was a whole criminal trial um, related to manslaughter for Paul, the son. And um, it was huge headlines in South Carolina, didn't really register nationally, because, you know, how is that any different from... Um, any other similar yeah. trial, but it was, it was um, newsworthy in South Carolina because it involved the family of Alex Murdoch, one of the most powerful men in the state. Fast forward maybe six, seven, eight, 12, 15 months, and now Alex Murdoch is being investigated for financial crimes related to the theft of over $8 million from his clients in the civil cases in which his law firm represented his clients in the state. And essentially, it came out today in testimony, we're day nine, I want to say, of, uh, of trial for the Alex Murdoch case. But the way that he would do it, um, based on the testimony that I heard this morning, um, was there would be a settlement. And just to give you an example, they settled... Um, the Smith case for uh, $200,000, the attorneys were supposed to take a percentage of that. Let's just call it 33%, 200000 um, A third of that would be, what, 67000 I don't know, seventy like dollars $68,000 or so in attorney fees. Well, as you guys know, working from here, attorneys have the right uh, to set their fees or take a reduction in fees for whatever reason they feel like. You know, nah, you know what? I don't need 33%. Let's call it 25, right? Um, those kinds of new go, I've done that. You guys have seen me take yes. cases. Per, oh, I can't afford it. Don't worry about it. I'm just going to represent you for free. Yeah. Because I believe in your case so much, whatever the reason. Well, um, what he would do, because he was an owner and he had access to all of the books 
And this is a law firm big enough where they actually have a CFO. Oh. So it's one of those kinds of firms, right? Wow. Lots of attorneys, and they worked with yeah. a lot of different law firms and lots of associates, lots of uh, paralegals, lots of staff, right? A big law firm. So he would go into the settlement documents that were submitted to accounting and just say, you know what? Reduction of attorney fees um, down to, uh, let's say, from 68000 to 30000 so how much is due to the clients? $170,000, right? Well, he created dummy accounts and pilfered that money, put it straight into his own accounts, and made off with the $8 million. Why an attorney would do that? It seems like the stupidest the stupidest way to sell it to steal money. If you're going to do it, I don't understand it. I don't understand how you don't think you're going to get caught. Yeah. You're already dealing with people that are litigious to begin with. Yep. And it's a lot of money. That's They have a judgment. They're expecting $170,000. Do you think that people are not going to come looking for their $170,000? Well, I don't know. But Murdoch did this to the tune of $8 million. And that's just one of the schemes. I don't think they even covered all. Well, of course they haven't. They, they're not going to get into all the financial evidence in this trial. But um, one of the things, one of his schemes came out was that. So he would create these dummy accounts. He would pilfer the money and keep it for himself. And then the firm ended up having to deal with the backlash from the clients. Like, hey, where's my where's my money? Yeah. So you know what the firm did? They still want to stay in business. They funded the client's trust accounts. And, you know, from the money that Alex Murdoch took, they took their own money and replaced it with their own money. So the firm is the one that has the damages. The clients were made whole as they should. Um, Girardi... In Girardi's case that we talked about <coughs> a couple of months ago, um, well, they couldn't afford to do all that, so they went out of business. But this firm is still in business, as um, Alex Murdoch has been uh, since disbarred. So <laughs> he has all of these things brewing, right? And he feels the winds of justice on his shoulders and uh, the sunbeams of the. I'm, I'm trying to be poetic, and it's, you know what? It's late on a Thursday afternoon. My brain is not quite up to par right now, but he felt the pressure. And um, at some point in 2021, he is accused of um, taking a shotgun, a 12-gauge buckshot shotgun, and uh, murdering his son in cold blood. And the way that it was described in opening statements was that from his own defense attorney, and by the way, coincidentally in this case, the defense attorney representing Paul, or that represented Paul in this case, Dick Hartputlian, is now representing his dad, who is accused of murdering his former client, Paul. So it's like this weird dynamic, and, and, and nobody raised a conflict of interest because the only person that could really raise that is dead, Paul, <laughs> right? Who's going to raise it? It's certainly not going to be his dad. That's fair. So <clears throat> there's this weird dynamic where they're trying to search for why would Paul do such a thing? And that's kind of been the big, the big question. But just to, to lay it out for you, they said that he shot him once in the chest and in the shoulder. And if you're familiar with buckshot, it, it, it shoots a spray of shrapnel, hit him in the chest, and the gases in that, in that shotgun shell are explosive. They explode on impact. So it gets him in the chest and in the shoulder. <coughs> They're saying no defensive wounds. So it just came completely out of the blue. Yeah. And then as he's sit, laying there on his floor, because I'm assuming, and they haven't gotten into this evidence yet, that the blast from the initial shot um, 
blew him deep down to the ground, um, put the shotgun underneath his chin and unloaded. And the gases from the bullet exploded that man's face, his head. I don't know. I, I kind of took liberty with some of the facts there. I don't know if uh, yeah. they placed the gun underneath his chin, but the bullet entered from underneath his chin. But what we do know is that the brain matter from Paul's skull hit the ceiling. Oh, my God. And fell down at his son's feet. And then lights out for Paul, right? Um, his, his skull was obliterated. The only thing left of Paul was his face. Everything else was pulverized, you know? And uh, from the evidence, Paul, um, well, Alex says that he tried to turn over Paul, so I don't know if when he died he was on his face or if he was on his back. Um, we haven't got that far into the testimony yet, but um, we'll get to that later. Shortly thereafter, <clears throat> his wife, Maggie, 52 years old, um, we don't know the circumstances of why or how, but we do know that they're, they were at these kennels. So here's the property, right? The main house would have been right here. This would have been the Moselle property. The kennels, it's a 1,400-acre estate. The kennels would have been way across the other side of the field. It's like a 40-second drive, a five-minute walk. So if you're walking, it would take you five minutes to get from one end to the other. Everybody was at the kennels. <coughs> which is where they had some dogs. And um, the testimony was at the time of the murder, around 8.44 p.m., Paul was on his cell phone with his friend, and they were discussing a dog that he was holding for his friend. And Paul was saying, I think there's something wrong with the guy's tail, with your dog's tail. And so um, he's trying to send him a video, a Snapchat video or some kind of FaceTime video about what the dog looked like. And on that video, um, they recovered it. And uh, Alex's story was that I was never near the kennels at that point. This is what Alex says. The prosecution lays out the timeline that sometime between 8.44 and uh, 8.50 is when the murders took place. At 8.44, they had cell phone data that shows... Uh, that there was activity was on Paul's phone, there was activity on Maggie's phone, and they were all kind of just both hanging out at the kennels. But they also have presented evidence on Alex's phone that also showed him at the kennels. Alex says, no, 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 I was taking a nap. I was not at the kennels. Bullshit with that. I was taking a nap, and around 9.04 p.m., I had called my, um, he tried to make some phone calls, he tried to text his wife, um, made some uh, several other phone calls and he was going to make an impromptu trip to check on his Alzheimer's riddled mother. Um, his dad was very sick and so mom was by herself or with somebody, maybe a caretaker, or whatever, but he goes to check on her and returns sometime later after nine o'clock and discovers the deceased bodies of his son, Paul, and his wife, Maggie. Interestingly, now, I didn't tell you the manner in which Maggie was murdered. We talked about Paul, obliterated, yeah. exploded skull, right? Maggie <laughs> appears, it's hard to even, it's, it's terrifying to even think about it. So what she must have saw was her son. She must have saw her son murdered or heard that he was murdered or saw at some point that, hey, my son is dead and somebody's now coming to kill me. 
She was murdered not with the shotgun, but there was a separate gun. It was an AR-style <coughs> um, blackout rifle, which is like one of those Call of Duty guns, right? Yeah. And um, was shot four times. Um, the last shot to the back of her skull um, as she was laying on her on the ground, face down, on her stomach, and that was lights out for her. But both of the murders occurred at the kennels. So whoever did it caught Paul and Maggie in close proximity, and the murders were very close together. Like, there's a very tight timeline of when everything happened. So <clears throat> Paul's story is, I came home. It was around 9, after 9 o'clock. I go and I find the bodies. I go and I, you know, I'm terrified. There's a 911 call, right? We didn't get to, <clears throat> we didn't learn a whole lot of information from the 911 call. It was difficult to listen to. Um, but he claims, obviously, I found the bodies. He says to the 911 operator that he tried to check for a pulse. He also tells the 911 operator that he had touched both of the bodies. He's later interrogated by police a few hours after the incidents had taken place. He's dressed in a very clean white, like the cleanest looking white shirt you've ever seen and a pair of black shorts. The forensics came back, not a drop of blood on that man. Not on the soles of his shoes, not on his hands because he tried to check for a pulse, not on, uh, you know, his white shirt, obviously. Yeah. Did he change his clothes? I don't know. So the argument from the defense is there was a 10 minutes between the time that the murders must have occurred because the prosecutors and the defense generally agree on the timeline because cell phone evidence of that nature, including the timing of the videos that they were taking and the time of the last activity from the cell phone data of uh, Paul and Maggie, the last activity were pretty specific. You're not going to be able to dispute that, right? So the timelines are pretty, at least that aspect of it is pretty clear. What they're disputing is the accuracy of the cell phone data that shows Alex, obviously at the scene of the incidents. Coincidentally, they found the phone of uh, Paul on his person, they found the cell phone of Maggie up the road somewhere as if somebody tried to throw it out the window, but they recovered it. And the way that they found it was through the Find My iPhone app, which pinpointed and then they found, yeah. and that's how they're able to track some of the data. Um, then they get Alex's phone call. Um, and so obviously the prosecution um, has their theory, but the defense theory is, um, number one, why in the world would Alex want to harm his son? Which is a valid question. Why would he want to harm a son? There was some video footage that came out today, and they're trying to say that they were having this wonderful father and son bonding moment or whatever, and that, um, you know, they had a good relationship, and um, Maggie had a good relationship with Alex, and why in the world would he want to kill those people? When he's talking to the cops, he's saying, um, our relationship was about as good as it could be, and I loved my son and all this stuff, so why would he want to do such a thing? And there is not evidence of a clear motive, which begs the question, why in the world? Why in the world? What we do know, what we do know is shortly prior to all of this, when all of the building storm from the financial crimes was starting to come together, what we do know is that he had plotted to have himself killed to fake his own suicide. And he tried to enlist the help of one of his friends to shoot him dead so that his son could collect $10 million of insurance, right? Which is even stranger, because if that's true... Then why is he still alive? 
why would he want to kill his son that he just tried to yeah. go through all this trouble to get him all this money? It's a strange case to be sure, right? Strange circumstances, and not, mind you, I know that because it's outside knowledge. Whether or not the jury knows that from hearing it from the media, I don't know. Whether or not all of that evidence comes into this case, I don't know. But what has come into the case is some of the financial evidence. Everything that we talked about factually, about the timeline, about where he's been, has either been introduced as evidence already or they're planning to introduce it later based on the opening statements. So, um, the prosecution theory of the case is that he, Alex, attempted to manufacture an alibi and they introduced evidence of his cell phone that he was trying to delete calls, that he was trying to do certain things to manipulate his phone. And um, that obviously he must, there's no freaking way that that guy handled dead bodies with blood of that magnitude and didn't get a drop of blood on him. It's more strange that he didn't have any blood on him than they would have found blood on him. Because if I found in similar circumstances, I'd be all covered with blood because, you know, natural human instinct. There's no possibility that there wouldn't be any blood on me. Just none. It doesn't make any sense unless he changed and somehow disposed of the clothes. But then the question is, okay, well, the, 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 the cops went in and searched the entire house. There was a search warrant. They did this full-on investigation. They went and recovered not, not just the house, but they investigated this case for like a year and a half, almost two years. And they couldn't find a single shred of evidence of clothes that were stained with blood that would have come from the evidence. What else is missing is the actual murder weapon that would have been used in the commission of the murders, right? So the way that the prosecution is dealing with that is they had a gun range on their estate, and um, the shells that were recovered at the scene of the murder incident match the same ammunition that would have been used by the many guns that were owned um, by the Murdochs. So there's questions all around. So there's my introduction to all of the facts. What do you guys think about that? Um, has he been tested for mental stability? Is there grounds of insanity occurring? No, no, no chance. Not even a little bit. And I mean, he's he'd have to he'd have to use the play the Girardi card, right? Um, like Alzheimer's. I have Alzheimer's, yeah. yeah. But he's clearly, I mean, he was just a practicing attorney. And you hear him speak, you heard him speak to the cops during the interrogation. He was clearly of sound mind. Mm -hmm. He was formulating theories about who might have killed Paul. He was saying, the only thing I could have think about is maybe the people from the boat case were pissed off at Paul. And he was, uh, he would get harassed online and in, in, in public by all kinds of people, specifically about the boat case. Now, I will say, that his friend, Paul's friend, came in to testify to, to verify some of that, but he also said that it wasn't so bad that, you know, he thought that he was in danger or anything like that, but it was certainly a thing. Um, then he he had this strange, um, he brought up this strange scenario where Paul had gotten into a fight with a couple of black guys at his high school and that he was um, being, he was cooperating with the FBI and there was a team of Navy SEALs who were investigating Black Panthers in the area and were the secret assassin team to assassinate wayward Black Panthers. He literally said this to the cops, and there hasn't been any follow-up to it. And I'm thinking, well, what in the hell is he talking about? But that's what came out of this guy's mouth just a few hours after Paul's murder as a possible theory 
about what might have happened to his son. Um, I think there was some also some speculation that one of the groundskeeper might have done. That was dismissed pretty quickly. He told Paul a story the other day about how when he was in high school, he got in a fight with some black guys. And the FBI undercover team observed him fighting those guys and put him on an undercover team with three Navy SEALs. And that their job was to kill radical Black Panthers. And they did that from Myrtle Beach to Savannah. Now, I really don't think this guy, you know, mm -hmm. is probably the person, but that's just so friggin'. Yeah, that's kind of far-fetched story. It's weird, but... Um, there, well, there's a lot of questions, right? So we've had nine days of testimony in the case, and uh, we'll review some of the stuff that uh, that came up. But just right off the bat, what are your guys' questions? Let's just say that you guys are prospective jurors. Though that's the summation of the facts as it came out from the defense and as it came out from the prosecution. I will say this, that they found a blue raincoat that looked like a, um, a tarp. It was that color of blue, like literal blue, crayon blue. That had gunshot residue on the inside. Blood? Not even a little bit. Not a single drop. But it was found stashed at his parents' house where he claims that he went to go check on his mom in like one of the rooms there. And he was caught on camera disposing of it. So <clears throat> prosecution's like, I don't know what he did, and they're not claiming to know what he did, but he tried to stage an alibi. He tried to stage the scene. He tried to, um, whatever, um, disrupt the investigation. He's not forthcoming. The defense is, of course he didn't do it. All of that is bullshit, right? It's pretty much what they've said. Yeah, Alternate theories, I don't know. But <clears throat> I'm going to share with you guys some of the most explosive evidence that has come out so far. I think I would have wondered what kind of relationship he had with his son and with his wife. Because, yes, we may say it's his son, it's his wife. But sometimes when we dig a little deeper in these kind of cases, we figure out that maybe the relationship wasn't as great. Yeah. Or there well, were some intern problems that maybe nobody was aware of. There's been some speculation. I don't know if it's been corroborated or not that Maggie was getting ready to file for divorce. Oh. But what does that got to do with this boy, Paul? That's true. And there's never, nobody ever said any indication, even his friends that testified in this trial so far have said that, no, I was like, a, I loved everybody in that house. And, you know, they were like my second family. Like, it seemed like Paul and his dad got along great. Maggie and his, uh, and Alex got along great. I didn't detect anything wrong, which is problematic. And so if you're the prosecution, like, what theory are you going with? I mean, was this like a murder-suicide type of scenario? Maybe he just said, you know what, I'm killing everybody and myself, and, and then, then he lost the nerve. <laughs> yeah. But then, like, how would he have so perfectly cleaned up the, 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 the crime scene to the point where they couldn't detect any blood whatsoever on his person? And um, I don't know. So there was definitely a time period between the 911 call and the time that the bodies were murdered of about 10 minutes. So the question is, could he have committed the murders and within 10 minutes dispose of all the evidence? The defense says that's not nearly enough time. No. You know what I say? Five minutes would have been enough time. 
if I have a specific plan. I think so, yeah. And I've ran through it, and I'm a smart guy like Alex, you know, and um, I understand criminal defense and what people look for. I could have, he could have formulated a specific plan and just executed it. Yeah. Boom, boom. Perfect murder. Run around, change. And here's the other thing from the cell phone data. There was some strange footsteps. You know how your cell phones will track your footsteps? Yes. Because there's like a foot, people think, oh, I got to take 2,000 steps today. Or what is it, 20,000 steps? Something like that. I don't know. Well, on the period where he's supposed to be napping or not anywhere near, not only do they got him on the premises, but he's walking around. Um, footsteps being registered on various cell phones after the murders are supposed to have been committed, um, which we don't got time to get into everything today, but we're going to definitely get into the key part of testimony so far that points towards guilt. But before I do that, let's pause. What was I saying last? What was I talking about last? talking about the perfect crimes five minutes would have been enough if he was perfectly if he had planned it like the entire scene in his face and more than he's an attorney and he knows criminal law and everything the way he does not even he knows criminal law just like i mean if he has a plan obviously it's going to be interesting to see how the raincoat factors into all of this we haven't heard any of the, of the gsr testimony gunshot residue so in the opening statement, they found gunshot residue in a raincoat. How that ties into everything, I don't know. It's yet to yet to be seen. But what I do know is that there hasn't been any blood. I'm curious to find out if there was any evidence of him trying to, um, I don't know, bleach his clothes or clean up from, you know, maybe on the raincoat. Why was there no blood on anything? Is my biggest question pointing to maybe I have a reasonable doubt whether or not he did it. Because whoever did it, if he shot a shotgun, there's no way he's getting rid of all that blood. There's no way. So the prosecution is going to have to tie that up. I just submit that if he had a plan and he executed it and everything went according to plan, according to the murders, which it looks like it did, um, then 10 minutes would have been plenty of time. It doesn't take, you know, um, for him to get back to the house and change his clothes or do whatever he did with those clothes. I just don't think that 10 minutes is all that little of time. I think it's plenty of time to do what he had to do. So. <clears throat> well, if you're a klutz like me, I would have taken an hour. <laughs> but <laughs> this guy is sharp. Well, I mean, I don't know how sharp he is. It's still, it's still they still have to tie it up. Um, there, There's a lot of questions. Um, I guess we're just going to have to see. But I want you to, okay. So there was uh, some of the highlights from the trial so far. There was some evidence that he may have confessed. What do you mean? You ever read that book, Crime and Punishment? In Spanish, yes. What's it about? Crimen y Castillo. Um, I read it when I was in high school. Do not ask me about that now. But I know which one it high is. School wasn't Theodore Dostoevsky. Hey! <laughs> it wasn't? Well, I guess it was 10 years ago. That would have been <laughs> a sufficient amount of time. Crime and Punishment is about a guy that commits a crime, and he is so riddled with guilt. He was going to get away with a crime. Like, it was a perfect crime. He was going to get away with it. But his guilt was so much that his need to confess or get off his chest, what he did was so much that it was pouring through his veins and that he couldn't help himself. He just confessed out of sheer guilt. The weight of the crimes that he committed, he ended up confessing.
So the defense brought up whether or not this was actual a confession. There was some indication from the police that they thought what he said, what he said was sounded sort of like a confession and it was while he's being interrogated, but I want you to listen to it. So this is some of the testimony that, um, came out when they were questioning him about that. Give me one. I did. There we go. I reached out to Alec and I said, Alec, um, you know, Hey, um, I mean, I don't know what all we talked about in that call, but at some point in time we talked about, I said, Hey, I've got this email that's been forwarded to me by Vicki, um, where your firm is saying that you believe you're owed more cost. Um, I put the cost down on the cost on the disbursement sheet that you had given me. Um, but if you've got more costs, just figure out what trust account. I just want to fast forward to the audio. Of he paid to us. And then he told me that um, they had done. That is not the video. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> Short intervention. That guys. was about He's his. Um, video. Yeah, that video was the uh, financial. Um, the financial crimes evidence. Here it is. It's this guy. It was this guy. It was. I did him so bad. Yeah. Rather than they did him so bad. I'm 100% confident in what I heard. Said in the scene, they're talking about there was a group of officers there, and he's just kind of going off. There's people there, and they thought that they heard him say, I did him so bad. And they took that as maybe that's like, maybe there's a confession in there somewhere. As, as a reason to continue to investigate. And that's what they're talking about. Whether or not he said, I did him so bad or they did him so bad. And I'll tell you, um, I've listened to it several times now. Every time I hear it, I hear I, I did him so bad, which I thought was a hundred percent clear, but my wife says she clearly hears they. And so I don't know what she's listening to, but that's what she said. But tell me what you think. We're going to listen to it. And I interpreted him as saying, but you would agree that this jury can hear the same thing you heard on June the 10th by, by playing what was captured on the body cam or the, or the recording equipment in Agent Owen's car, right? Yes, sir. Now, when you heard <coughs> what you said, you're confident what you heard, that you said, I did him so bad, um, what did you do in response to that? I made a mental note of, on it, uh, of it. Again, we were still in the early stages of investigation. It was more of an information gathering from Mr. Allen, uh, and we did not have I'll fast forward information. I'll fast-forward to that. Heard or misheard, I did him so bad. I mean, like, I wasn't a good dad? I... Forty-three and others. All right, so they're they gonna play the audio. All right, let's let's play it, please, Doug. Exhibit uh, two forty-three and others. It's tough. <laughs> it's just so bad. I did it so bad. What'd you hear him say? It's just so bad. I did it so bad. That's what I heard. All right, back it up and play it in real time again, Doug, real time. 
not not easy. I know it's hard. Um, and sitting here talking today is is tough. It's just so bad. They did it so bad. Now I heard they. No. I did not hear they. There's no way. There's no way. How do you hear? I need to hear it again. This is so bad. I did it so bad. Okay, that's the regular. Because at the second time they played it, I think they played it in a little bit of a slower motion. No. First time I heard, I. Same speed. They repeated it. They're, they are going to slow down right now. Watch. <clears throat> did you hear now, they or I? I will still testify that my hearing, I hear I. Your Honor, we'd like to play it again at one-third speed to slow it down. It's just the same. Thank you. Your Honor, we're just playing it at one-third speed. The foundation laid for who's manipulating it, how it's being manipulated. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, we have it in real time, but there would have to be some additional foundation. Play at one-third speed. First time I've ever heard you they. I. Did you hear they then? No, sir, I did not. Okay. <clears throat> I don't know. Do you would agree the jury gets to decide what he... What I guess the other point is, I mean, they were trying to get at, you know, well, if he, you thought it was a confession, like, why didn't you follow up? And I'm thinking the whole time, because this is a couple of days after he'd been charged with a... He's literally been charged with a murder. I mean, it wouldn't... What do you mean, wouldn't, why didn't they follow up with it? Of course they followed up. He's literally sitting there in trial... So whatever their point was with this with this cross examination, I thought it was stupid. Whether or not he said I or they, nobody's claiming that it was a confession. I'll just tell you this: the prosecution isn't basing um, all of their cards on whether or not the jury believes that this was a confession or not. I promise you that. So it's just one card out of the many, many they should. It's be a piece of evidence. I don't know. I'm not even sure if it was necessary, but they threw it in. So. Here we are. Um, there was another uh, piece of evidence that came out. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Okay, so I told you what the defense's theory about Paul, that he wasn't there in the kennels, he didn't discover them or go near them until after they were deceased. Well, if that was true, what if I told you there was a video that Paul took on his cell phone that has three distinct voices on it, Paul's, Maggie's, and Alex Murdoch existed just a few minutes before he was murdered with a shotgun. What would you say then about Alex's story? I would like to see the video. Let's take a look. Let's take a look. First of all, let's uh, hear the testimony about it first. All right. 
Now, one thing we haven't talked about with Maggie and Alex's phone is uh, one other review you've done to these phones is those phones have a lot of photographs and videos on them, correct? Yes, sir, correct. And you've reviewed, uh, I don't know if you've reviewed them all, but have you reviewed a substantial portion of them? Yes, sir. All right. And did you find anything on Maggie or Alex's phone uh, that was relevant to the investigation on, at least on June 7th of 2021? Yes, sir, I did. On, on Maggie or Alex's phone? Oh, I'm sorry. No, not on Maggie or Alex's phone. Okay. At least in relation to, to the events of that night, was there anything recorded on Maggie or Alex's phone that was relevant that you found? As far as video recordings or photograph recordings, no. Okay. All right. Uh, Paul's phone, did you conduct a similar review? Yes, sir, I did. And did you find anything that you considered relevant to what occurred on the night of June 7th at Mozilla? Yes, sir, I did. Okay. Uh, and in fact, we've already referenced it, haven't we? Yes, sir. Uh, when we looked at Paul's timeline, we saw an entry of Paul's camera coming on, correct? Yes, sir. And I think you wrote the time down, uh, but if you can't find it, we can get the report out again. But what time did that camera come on? At 8.44.49. Okay. And how long was that video again? It was roughly 50 <clears throat> seconds. And when did that video end? At 8.45.47. And you're certain about that? Yes, sir. Why are you certain about that? Because I reviewed the video for looking at the length of the video. It compared it to the length of the camera time that was on. So it was established also in the timeline. There was data recorded in the video because it was taken with the phone. It's all foundational it stuff. Just, so anyway, bottom line is the video was taken at the time, you know, where the prosecution said their timeline took place, between 844 and 850. I'm going to show you what's been marked as video has the video looks like inside maybe a um, you can tell because they're so different you can tell that they're so he's saying phone. the video he's saying that there's three distinct voices we're going to hear not just him but his friend is going to testify about who he thought the three voices were mm -hmm. and um but anyway let's take a listen video looks like inside maybe a kennel area with a fence around it and a dog i believe to be a lab um, where he's trying to take a video of the tail of the dog. Okay. All right. And that's what you see in that video. Yes, sir. Uh, what do you hear in the video? You hear three different voices in the video. Um, you can tell because they're so different, you can tell that they're different voices. All right. Now, are any of those voices known personally to you? No, sir, they are not. Okay. This time, State would move to enter exhibit. 297 into evidence. All right, and at this time, the state's going to publish that video. It is not under seal. All right, here it is. Maggie. 
By the way, it really bothers me. Every time I swear to God, Alex, see him over here like bobbing his head up and down. He's like pretending like he's crying. He's been doing that, I swear, since since the time he was interrogated to this moment in trial, probably today, every time he has to cry, I've never seen a single solitary tear fall from that man's eyes. Just pointing that out. What time is that video recorded again, Lieutenant Duff? The camera begins at 8.44.49 p.m. And ends when? at 8.45.47 p.m. Ends at 8.47 p.m. Literally minutes later, a couple of minutes later, both Maggie and Paul are dead. And if that's Alex's voice on the, on the, on the footage, then um, it's kind of problematic if you're trying to say that uh, you weren't there, right? So Let's just say it in a nice way. He's fucked. Well, let's not say that. Well, you say, yeah, you can say that pretty much. That's what Ileana would say. Um, if she were here, but here, let's, um, let's, let's look at the raw video. This is the raw video that we're about to see. Um, so this is the cell phone video itself. Let me transition. This is off of Paul's cell phone. Get back, get back. Did you hear on that video? Three. Three distinct voices, right? Yes, very distinct, actually. Does that sound like that? I'm, you know, does that sound? You heard, just heard Alex's voice on the other video. Does that sound like Alex's voice? Yes. Jeez. All right. Well, you're gonna hear his friends say the same thing, who knew him a lot better than you and I did. Yeah. But they're gonna review it again. That's Maggie. Yeah. That was clearly Alex said, "Bubba." That's a guinea. This is a chicken. That's obviously Alex. Obviously. Yeah, I don't know how <clears throat> the defense overcomes that evidence. Because think about it this way. If, if credibility is a thing, and it absolutely is in a trial like this. Yes. And you tell the jury in your opening statements that um, Paul was nowhere near the kennels at the time the incident occurred. He didn't go near the kennels until after, until after. Well, um, 
If you can't be believed on that issue, then pretty much everything else you have to say is bullshit. And honestly, that's the strongest evidence that we've seen so far in the case. Um, they do have more evidence about the deleted cell phones, and um, you know we won't get into too much of that. But um, let's listen to um, this is Paul's best friend. He was testifying, and he identifies the uh, voices on that phone. And let's uh, take a listen to him. and friends have gathered, did anyone ever ask you about your last contact with Paul? There was. And who asked you? Grandma. And that being Miss Brandstutter? That's correct. Maggie's mother? That's correct. And what did you say? Told her, yeah, that I talked to Paul about the dog and told her that I heard Miss Maggie in the background and I heard a male voice that I thought was Mr. Elliott. Was he in the room then? Yes. Did he stand up and say, no, I wasn't there? He didn't. Did you ever have any conversation with Alec Murdoch about what happened that night? No, sir. Did he ever ask you about whether or not you heard him on that, that phone that night? No, sir. Did he ever tell you what he did that night? No, sir. Did you ever ask him what he did that night? No, sir. Not a subject you wanted to talk about, was it? That's correct. You were ultimately interviewed by law enforcement and, and other part of the process and that sort of thing. Is that correct? That's correct. And as time went on and you were asked about who you heard on the phone that night, that call at 840, you said, hey, I thought it was Alec, but I can't be sure. That's correct. So law enforcement the night of 99. So listen to what it says here. The night of the incident, he says, I'm not sure. But then pretty much right, right here, he's asking him again, <clears throat> who is that you hear on the cell phone? Let's listen to his response. percent sure, correct? Say that question again, please. You told law enforcement the next day, June 8th, that you were 99% sure. Is that correct? That's correct. As time went on, you said, I thought it was Alec, but I can't be sure. That's correct. In November of 2022, did law enforcement ask you to come in and look at a video? They did. And did you watch that video? I did. And what was on that video? It was the video. Paul was supposed to take a cash. Cash was on the video. And did you hear, recognize the voices on there? I did. Did you recognize the voices of your second family? I did. And what voices did you hear? Paul's, Miss Maggie, Miss Ellick. And how sure are you now? Positive. 100%? That's correct. 100%. Oh, boy. <laughs> you know, what do you even say to that? If you're Alex's attorney, how do you even overcome it? It's funny, when, you, when you're looking at the other video, I'm not going to go back to it, but uh, when we were looking at the other video, um, as that evidence that came out, uh, Murdoch's attorney shot a look at Alex, like this blank, defeated stare. Like, what do you even say? What do you even say? Um, so, yeah. There's nothing you can say. At this point... You've heard me say a million times now, not only on this show, but in practice, like what's the most important thing when you're in a courtroom? If you're the person speaking, it's credibility, right? Credibility of the attorney, credibility of the witness, credibility of your client, 
credibility matters. As soon as credibility is shattered, then everything else goes out the window, right? Not only in the courtroom, Omar, but when we've have dealt with cases in the past, soon as we sniff that they're not telling the complete truth, their credibility just shatters to the floor and you know we're just like... Well, yeah. when we find out that somebody on opposing is not credible, we pounce, right? Like we go, we were specific with discovery. We start digging in deeper exactly. and establishing and making sure that it's understood that this person lied um, under penalty of perjury. And we use that to our advantage in the case because, all right, well, now we got you dead or right. So what do you want to do now? And usually those kinds of cases settle because opposing counsel on the other side um, recognizes, yeah, we, we kind of stepped in it here. When our clients are found out to be liars, you know, when, when we come back and they've lied to us and it comes out later in testimony, we usually settle because, okay, well, obviously something's untruthful. We have to deal with it, but it's not something you could just ignore. You can't explain it away. So here's where Alex Murdoch's attorneys are right now. And what's interesting is they knew that this evidence was coming. They knew this evidence was coming, yet they stood up in opening statements and said that Alex was nowhere near the murder um, at the time of the incident. He was out visiting his parents, and he didn't discover the bodies until sometime after 9 o'clock. You heard that foundational testimony where it was very clear. They painted a very specific timeline. The video ended around 8.47 p.m. Not only uh, did you get to hear Maggie and Paul's voices on that video, but clear as day. Multiple times you heard what was clearly Alex's voice on that cell phone. And what I'm telling you, what I'm, what I'm telling you is this. The prosecution should not waste a lot of time with alibis. They shouldn't waste a lot of time with, um, you know, some of the forensic stuff that I'm sure the defense is going to try to get in because they're going to try to poke holes and reasonable doubt. And they got to keep this case very simple because they kind of have smoking gun evidence at this point. Because how you cannot overcome that that was his voice on the video. And I'm very curious on closing argument how the um, defense team is going to deal with that very devastating piece of evidence. Because if they can't, there is no reasonable doubt for Alex Murdoch. Case closed. Case is over. But obviously, this is going to be probably a three to six week trial. We're like uh, nine days in. So there's a long way to go. The defense hasn't even begun to present their case at this point. So I know I'm jumping in. All I'm saying is that as of right now, if I was keeping score, uh, the prosecution um, is way ahead at this point on the strength of that evidence. And now they got into some of the financial evidence uh, this afternoon. And that was some of the stuff that I had brought up earlier about, you know, his fraudulent schemes, about how he was stealing money from his clients, from his law firm and all that kind of stuff. I don't know why they're presenting that other than to um, paint some kind of basis for a man that was kind of going down the tubes. He's already been investigated for his financial crimes. He's already facing like 90 plus counts of um, financial crimes where he could potentially spend the rest of his life in jail. So I'm thinking they're probably painting this as a potential murder-suicide alibi, but he was too chicken shit to turn the gun on himself. 
Um, and so instead he, um, went to plan B, which is to try to cover it up. And, you know, here we are standing trial. I don't know. I have no idea how they're going to try to frame that evidence going forward. I just know that that's where we're at as of today. So, um, I don't know. What do you think about all of that? Yeah, he did it. Is there, well, how would you defend him? You are Alex Murdoch's defense attorney. What do you do? What do you do? I mean, this is gonna this is gonna sound really bad, and please pardon me. I'm not an attorney yet. I'm still struggling to get into law school. Hopefully, hopefully not the fall. I would actually highly ad- advise him to take a plea bargain or settle in some kind of way. Well, we're kind of late on the plea bargain. If I'm the prosecutor, I'm not offering you a plea. We're already a trial. You wanted to take pleas. The plea is life in prison. Oh, yeah, yeah, you know what? No death Scratch penalty. That, that's way before. Yeah, I mean, they, they can still do it. He had like a hundred opportunities. Until there was a actual verdict. I mean, he has the option to plea, but if you're the prosecutor, are you taking that deal? I guess the deal, if there was one to be had, would have been, you know, all right, life in prison without the possibility of parole. Uh, no, not pursue the death penalty. Um, but I'm not even sure if they're willing to go that far in this case. I think this is all or nothing from the prosecutor. And here's why, because if they don't get him with this, they're going to get him with the financial stuff anyway. So, no, there's no plea deal here. We're going for broke. And so that's out. They're, they're, there's, they're already going to get what they're looking for in this other case. And by the way, um, the same prosecutor, um, Creighton Waters, who is prosecuting this murder trial, is prosecuting the financial crime. So he knows it up backwards and forwards. So plea deal, no, no. I still got this other thing with the finances. I'm still doing that trial anyway. Um, you're still going to be in prison even if you get acquitted on this case so no to your plea request for a plea bargain so um no i think what they're going to do is they're going to try well they're going to have to try to attack the cell phone they, they're going to have to stick with this story they just have to stick with their story and hope for the best at this point that's not alex's voice it could have been an echo it could have been the groundskeeper it could have been i don't know somebody else passing by the street yeah but it's a significant hole it's a significant hole Okay, everybody, I think it's time for us to uh, wrap up this week in the Alex Murdoch trial. So if you've been with us for this long in the podcast, um, I truly do appreciate you and thank you for for sticking with us for this long. I do apologize for all of the technical difficulties from today. Um, is I'm getting a lot better at the editing process, but you know, the more things that I implement, the more things that could go wrong. The least of which I thought would be, hey, let's just forget to turn off uh, or turn on our uh, camera for the first 30 minutes of the show. So that happened, and you know, that's out of the way. I will say that's a first. Hopefully, it's not a last. Um, since I recorded the initial portion of the of the episode, I'm now uh, it is 5:02 Pacific time. Uh, The trial has concluded, the trial week has concluded for Alex Murdoch. Um, There has not been a whole lot of extra anything that's gone on so far um, in terms of the trial. I mean, today, uh, obviously, they had testimony. But in terms of um, big, heavy-hitting evidence, there wasn't a whole lot other than, you know, mundane um, foundation uh, type stuff. They did get into some of the firearm stuff, and it was just simply the point that there was uh, shell casings all over that property from where they had a gun range where they would practice and shoot guns. The shell casings that were found on the gun range matched the shell casings that were found at the scene, and the only really 
really the only connection there was that the pro from the prosecution's perspective, the murder weapon was obviously the same ammunition that was found elsewhere on the Murdoch property, implying that the same ammunition from the same guns was used in the commission of the crime, implicating Alex Murdoch. And uh, what else came out today? There was um, not a whole lot. There, there was uh, some testimony regarding uh, Alex Murdoch's friend, where he allegedly tried to kill himself. A lot of really what they're trying to do now is, and I was wondering how they're going to handle it, the absence of an alibi. And it seems that what they're getting into now, especially with all of the financial evidence that's been allowed to come in, and, you know, as I stated yesterday, um, the, the, the prosecutor in this case, Creighton Waters, is also going to be prosecuting him on all of the financial crimes. And the alibi that they're going with at this point is that he was about to be discovered, he was drowning in debt, the money was coming in, um, and, you know, leaving his account as it, 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 he wasn't making enough to cover all of his losses. He was $364,000 overdrawn on his bank accounts. Um, everything was about to come crashing in. And rather than face that exposure, he was about to be let go from his firm. He was about to be indicted in all of these charges. Um, it was almost like this murder-suicide type of pact that he made with himself, that rather than face those consequences, either to gain sympathy from the general public, and like, oh, look at me, you know, I, all of these things, but my family was just murdered in cold blood. Doesn't make a lot of sense to me. Um, or the other, that he intended to um, end his family's life and his own, and he just didn't, and when it comes to him anyway. Uh, but they're, they're trying to establish that alibi, put some kind of a reasoning as to why all of this happened. And uh, that's where we're at today. As far as where we go next week um, is anybody's guess. Um, I'm going to continue to do um, some of the highlights on, on the Murdoch trial as we continue to go along. There's also a lot of other stuff that I haven't had a chance to get to uh, this week. There's been some updates on the Kohlberger case. There's uh, been uh, some new revelations uh, from the Anna Walsh case that I wanted to talk about. Um, there's been some new updates on the Garcia case um, and uh, some revelations there. I don't have time to get into any of that today, uh, but I do want to touch on it next week. I am going to continue to keep posting daily. I think I have it to where, um, honestly, the, 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 the most difficult part in all of this has always been the editing aspect of it for me. But I think I have it to where um, I'm going to be able to start outputting more um, without using up such um, so much of my time that's going to allow me to continue to do the, my job as a, as a daytime attorney and a YouTuber, YouTuber by night, uh, YouTube prognosticator, law commentator, whatever you want to say. Um, I'm going to keep on doing what I'm going to do. And one thing about me, I'm not really the kind of guy that fails at things. And so I'm going to continue to grow this channel. Um, I've grown uh, to, you know, adore uh, the, the, the small gathering of followers that we currently have that is going to continue to grow. And I want to see this all the way through. I'm going to keep on putting in the work. I'm going to keep on putting out content. I'm going to keep on breaking down the cases that you guys want to see. That is my pledge to you. Um, so, for all it's worth, thank you so much for being with me. 
You can always find us on the YouTube channel, of course, or wherever it is that you get your podcast. My favorite, I, I, I tend to be a Spotify guy. I'm certainly on Spotify. I'm also on Apple iTunes, um, CastBox, Stitcher, um, all of, you know, wh- wherever you find yours. Um, we're going to be there, listen on this podcast or the YouTube channel. Spread the word out about this show. Um, tell your friends, tell your mom, tell your dad, tell your brothers, your cousins, your sisters, your friends, your best friends. Listen to me while you're at the work, uh, on, on your way to work. Uh, listen uh, when you're pretending to work at your job. However it is, uh, we're going to have, uh, I'm going to keep on putting out this content and uh, we're going to get to know each other a lot better over the coming uh, months, going into years, hopefully, if we're lucky. So at any rate, Thank you so much. This was episode 26 of the Tilted Lawyer podcast, and I look forward to seeing you all uh, later on next week. Uh, Look for new content starting Monday. Bye-bye. Thank you all for listening to the entire podcast. We really do appreciate that. And as always, you can find us on YouTube on the Tilted Lawyer podcast YouTube channel or on your podcast carrier of choice. If you feel we've presented anything of value, please leave a five-star rating, like, and subscribe. We always appreciate that kind of thing. And we do look forward to seeing you all again live every Thursday at 3 in the afternoon. We love you all. Take care. Bye-bye.